Well, good morning, Greenwich. Welcome to the Thursday, May 13th edition of the Basement Academy. Thanks for taking a few minutes out of your day to offer prayer together through a psalm and to continue with some reflection upon the book of Ecclesiastes. I hope you've enjoyed uh, the first three chapters uh, of this very interesting book. <laughs> Let's begin with a psalm, as we do every morning, Psalm 43. It is in some in in Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible, Psalm 42 and 43 are joined together. And there's a similar theme. So if you heard yesterday's psalm, it'll you'll hear some echo of that. Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Rescue me from deceitful and wicked men. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then will I go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the harp, O God, my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So again, that, that phrase uh, or that, that section, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed? That shows up twice in Psalm 42. Here kind of pivots away from the the hungering for God, the thirsting for God. Here, there's this plea for vindication. Vindicate me, O God. Plead my cause against an ungodly nation. So whatever's happening to the psalmist, feeling that there's some attack, uh, hostility uh, in relationship with others. And then verse three, I've always enjoyed verse three. Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. And so may God send forth uh, light and truth to each of us uh, each day in our homes, in our lives, in our relationships, in our work. Um, this, this cry for vindication uh, is such a, uh, it's, it's a human cry, right? <laughs> we feel we have been wronged. We feel uh, that we are victims in, in some way, that we've been offended. Um, would that we plead to God for our vindication. Um, we live in such a, a, a sensitive uh, time. People are so offended so quickly over matters that I, I don't want to dismiss as being inconsequential, but the scriptures do guide us that the wise person overlooks an offense. And, and any more, you know, People say things not intending anything by them and people take offense and they are kind of thrown under the bus. And so may we each learn to pour our heart out to God first. Um, there may be other avenues that we need to explore, but let us always begin in prayer. So Psalm 43. Okay, we continue with uh, our reading and reflections in Ecclesiastes. And so these last three days. We've read the first three chapters. Um, we're moving along quickly, right? So this is, I guess, formal Bible study in, in some ways. We haven't done it quite like this before. 
but I love this book. It is a hard book. Um, if you've been listening or watching the last three days, you you know what I'm talking about. It, it's just it's just right there, kind of in your face. Again, little review. The teacher, the one who writes this, has a role within the kahal. That's the Hebrew word for assembly, the congregation. So this is like the pastor, right? Like the instructor in some ways, but identified with the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. And you can hear a Solomonic connection. Uh, Solomon who uh, had all these building projects and the like. And so clearly this is, uh, there's an illusion if not, if it's not directly written by, by Solomon, which some scholars doubt. Okay, let me read chapter four, and then we'll dive in for some reflection. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not yet seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hand and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the one who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And that's chapter four. And so the refrain, okay, and the teacher, the preacher, the, the one who presides, brings this perspective under the sun. So there's the refrain of life under the sun. That's an understanding of from a strictly human perspective, you look at life and it just seems empty and futile. It's against the backdrop of the reality of Genesis 3, 
uh, of sin and then the tragedy that sin brings to the human family. This phrase, east of Eden, is one that I use as shorthand to talk about life in a fallen world where misery, death, sadness, sorrow, the toil from the sweat of the brow and the thorns and thistles that come up, the, the pain of childbearing, the, the curse that, that, that God pronounced upon Adam and Eve uh, in the garden after their sin, the, the, the writer um, speaks against that backdrop, trying to illumine or to illustrate. And so this chapter talks about meaningless, this, this futile uh, way of chasing after the wind, these things that happen. And so it opens with some very honest assessments of what I would say are some hard to name or hard to talk about realities, okay? I, I see four in particular. The reality of oppression. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they, I think it's the oppressors, have no comforter. This dog-eat-dog -dog world. Everyone's out for themselves. And those who can grab the power, they can oppress. They can keep others under their thumb. We, we hear about this more and more these days. Systemic oppression. Systemic racism. We are fooling ourselves if we don't acknowledge the reality of oppression and power. Now... I disagree with the neo-Marxists, the folks who stand behind some of the teaching known as critical race theory that sees everything only in terms of power and only in terms of skin color and identity groups. So identity politics. And yet identity politics is giving voice to this biblical expression in Ecclesiastes chapter four, the tears of the oppressed. Those who have privilege, those who have power, those who have means, those who have money, those who have jobs. Um, not, not that there's not hardship that, that comes there, but, but there are poor people. There are genuinely, honestly poor people. <laughs> Poverty is a reality. Uh, the, the cards are stacked against, right? The deck is stacked against some people, it seems. And so there are tears of the oppressed. They find no comfort. There is comfort in God, but but humanly speaking, they find them, they wake up the next day uh, in misery, uh, in need, and power is on the side of the oppressors. It is. And so we do see uh, our, our Marxist friends, <laughs> if I could say it that way, are onto something. They're perceiving this reality and this dynamic. And so as Christians, we don't deny that. In fact, we ought not deny that. We recognize that in a fallen world, it does become a little bit of a one tribe against another. And if you can get the upper hand, boy, if you get the power, you're not going to let go of it, okay? So it speaks to this reality. And so as Christians, we ought to stand against such realities. The trick is how to discern uh, the best ways to do that. Okay, so that's one hard-to-name reality. Second is this... Um, Notion that all labor and all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. Keeping up with the Joneses, we call it, right? Envy drives much of people's desire to succeed. And, and there's a drivenness in many people, not all, but, but many people have a drivenness. 
and they maybe can't always explain it or name it as such, but it is, I see what those people have. I want that myself, or I want more than they have. And I, every time it gets to, uh, I, I follow a lot of sports, sports contract season, right? If you get to the end of the season or off season and players are renegotiating or you get on the free agent market and the numbers are ludicrous in terms of the amount of money we're talking about to play, to pay a person for playing a game. I get that it's entertainment and all that. I, I get that. And the market bears it. So I, I get that too. But there are guys who, who need you know, 30 and $40 million a year to play a game. And sometimes they hold out or don't sign with the team that they've been playing for because that team doesn't offer them 41 million or something like that. And there are sometimes I'll read the interview and I just wanted to be the highest paid player. And so there is this drivenness, this, I want to, he's got that much money. I want $1 more in my contract. Okay. I'm sure this happens everywhere. Okay. I, I'm a little more familiar with the world of, of sports. I'm sure politics is driven. Envy gets in there. I'm sure it's in the world of the arts. Certainly I, I, I hear of, of such things. And so envy, just a burning that somebody else has achieved success that you have yet to, 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 to achieve. And so this driving, this drivenness of the human family to one up our neighbor. Interesting. So it observes that. And so it names that reality. And then this other thing, the fool folds his hands and ruins himself. It's kind of the image of the fool who just sits back and, well, I've had kind of a hard day. Yeah, I did, had a lot of work today. I'm just going to take a little rest. And, and, and so contrasting with envy that drives much labor and achievement, there is contrast with that the fool who, you know, I'm going to let all those other people, they're, they're going to race after the big money. I'm going to sit here and just take it easy right here. A, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a bandit. That's what the Proverbs say. That's why it's kind of the echo of Solomon, right? Solomon, we think, stands behind uh, much of the book of Proverbs. A little folding of the hands to rest. A man ruins his life through sloth, through laziness, through an unwillingness to labor and to work, right? Um, so an entitlement society, right? Of a victim society, you know, where people feel the world owes them a living, that, that, that kind of thing. Um, in the Proverbs, it says, a man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Sometimes people don't have things because they're unwilling to work. And again, in this kind of weird world that we're currently living in. Again, these words are 3,000 years old, but in this world of identity politics, if you try to name some of these realities and say, jobs are available. Well, it's not a high paying job. Well, you know, a lot of people started, you know, throwing newspapers and then they mowed lawns and then they went out and got a job, you know, working fast food. And then they went to college and it, it's a work ethic. And, it, and so, 
it's this, I think the writer of Proverbs is writing, speaking to this reality. There's something in the human that just wants to fold its hands and rest and have others do for them. When that doesn't come about, the fool folds his hand and ruins his life. And so sloth and laziness are realities. And then there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. Miserliness and loneliness. Some people in the pursuit of wealth and the pursuit of, of, of things and power and, and influence, they give themselves in such a way that they lose relationship. The, the language here is, a man was all alone, neither son nor brother. I don't have time to get married. I don't have time for a family. I've lost touch with my own family of origin. And so you've got somebody, kind of you picture Ebenezer Scrooge, right? His life is bent on accomplishing, bent on wealth, bent on just a little bit more. And so there's a miserly, not, his eyes were not content with his wealth, but why am I toiling? So loneliness and miser, miserliness, sorry, I can't pronounce that well, often go together. People are, become, there are stingy people, right? They're very generous people. Thank, thankfully, God prompts many to be generous, but there are plenty of misers and stingy people, okay? And so the writer is these are harder to name realities. If you speak about this, you know, well, it sounds like you're, you know, being mean. Again, this book is the preacher's friend, okay? It's hard to say some of these things from the pulpit, right? Get out there and, and work hard, etc. So, so there's these, these hard to name realities that the writer names and talks about the futility of, of these endeavors and the reality and the chasing after the wind. But I love this section in chapter four. I read this probably at three quarters of the weddings that I officiate. Let me read it again. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the one who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Love this language. <clears throat> it, it's, I think, more generally speaking to the reality of companionship. So in contrast to the miser who was alone with his wealth and counting his stacks and that futility of that, contrasted with that, is companionship, of, of working with others, finding friendship, finding fellowship, finding this, this joy in a shared labor and shared effort. And so it's about friendship and collegiality and, and, and there is a strength in numbers, right? I mean, I think that's that, that, that notion. Two are better than one. I like to read this specifically in the context of the marriage relationship. And so these two coming together, it was not good for man to be alone, not good for Adam to be alone. And so God makes Eve. And there is a complementary nature to man and woman, both seen in the anatomy and physiology, but there's also in the, 
the way God seems to have made man and woman different in terms of affect and, and personality and interest. And so, again, I know I'm generalizing, so please do not take offense. But there's this joy that comes in, in co-laboring with a spouse, with a partner, a life partner. And I make much in the wedding service when, when I read this, the cord of three strands. Well, I say, okay, well, here's one strand. There's the groom. There's the second strand. There's the bride. What's this thing about a third strand? God, the third strand, the invisible partner to the friendship, the invisible partner to the marriage. And so there is the phrase, of course, we know, you know, tying the knot in marriage. You know, they're tying the knot. And I always say, we don't tie the knot, we braid the cord. And so marriage is more like a braided cord of these three strands, these two lives with God, the silent partner, weaving them together into a cord of three strands that is not quickly broken. Because when you pull on that braided cord, you see the pattern, you see the, the weave, uh, you see um, there, there's a beauty, there's an order, there's a strength uh, to these, uh, these, this cord of three strands. And so I think in a beautiful um, section of poetry, lifting up the joy of human companionship, a human partnership, and then again, I like to specifically um, uh, apply this in the context of marriage. So I love chapter four. And then finally, what I would uh, call a futility in matters or affairs of state. Uh, the, 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 the section, the, the few verses, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. Something happens when one is king, when one has authority for a long time. When authority has been vested by some body, be it the body politic or an organization, I fear this is a church. I've, I've been the pastor for 20 years and a complacency can settle in. I, I wish that, I, 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 I pray that never happens for me. But, but these things happen. Again, within hum, the human family, life east of Eden, when people have authority, for an extended period of time, a complacency sets in. They, the foolish king no longer knows how to take warning. When you're young, when you're new at the job, you're new in the work, you're new in the position, you're new in office, there is a, a, a vigilance, a diligence, a wanting to, to excel and, to, and to, to lean in and you're thinking about the future and how to organize and how to address the needs and and issues and problems of the organization. Uh, there's alliances that are built and there's, there's lessons that are learned and some missteps along the way. But, but again, there's a taking warning. Hey, I'd watch out over here. You know, things can happen with this person or this situation. But the old foolish king, so used to getting his own way, so used to everybody doing what he says, has no longer has the capacity to take warning, has lost that vitality, has lost that nimbleness, that ability to respond and to muster energy, is not worried about keeping fit uh, in body, mind, or spirit. And so in matters of state, we sometimes do find, I I'm not trying to make an argument against um, you know, permanent office. It's, you know, I would probably be one in favor of term limits, generally speaking. We have that in certain 
positions in our United States form of government and in our state governments. But there is something that happens, right? People who've been in Congress for decades, been in Senate for decades, they've lost touch with something. Okay, there, there is, and so bringing in new blood is is a good thing. So that's that's one aspect of this, right? And I, I wrote some notes to myself here. The scripture says that we are to fear God and the King. And it, it, it occurred to me the King is supposed to fear God Himself, right? Because the King that doesn't fear God will soon think they are God. The king that does not fear God will soon come to think that they are God. They will begin to bully around and become complacent. I'm used to having everybody do what I want to do and isn't aware that they are human also, that there may be threats that, that, that come. And so um, I, just, I just offer that. And then finally, uh, in this same section, it talks about the, the young person then succeeds, right? So the youth becomes the successor king. There was no end to all the people who were before them. So there's plenty of life that's happened before, but the youth sometimes forgets that, that life, you know, they didn't invent the world, right? That there is a world that we inherit. And then it says, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. I think the phrase is this what have you done for me lately, right? So we have a new president that's been in office since middle of January. And well, this is the, you know, approaching the middle of May. Gee, four months. <clears throat> Hasn't solved all the problems of the world. Won't solve all the problems of the world because they're unsolvable. But it's interesting how quickly people pivot. Supporting one candidate, supporting one platform, supporting one organization, when things don't turn out the way they want quickly, what have you done for me lately? Uh, get them out of here, okay? Such is human nature. And so again, these words were written 3,000 years ago, but has, has anything changed? <laughs> You've got old foolish kings, that is people who sit in office a little too long probably get complacent, and then you have this reality of the young, fresh successor who comes and then people who say, yeah, what, what have they done for me? And so I see this all the time. There is something fickle in the human condition, in the human personality. Um, there is, generally speaking, a resistance to and dissatisfaction with authority. I believe this stems from the fall. We wish no one to rule over us. Adam and Eve, we will be as gods. We will be the ones who determine right and wrong. We will be the ultimate judge and arbiter. Okay, that's, I think, that what, what the sin was, uh, wanting to be in that position of ultimate final authority. And so, therefore, the proud human heart will resist authority. And so this is why people you know, buck at the police. This is why people buck at the boss. This is why people buck at coaching and, and referees and teachers and certainly, uh, you know, public servants and politicians and, and pastors get this too. You, nobody's going to tell me what to do. And so this spirit of, 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 I think, sin, essentially, that abides in the human family, in the human heart and human condition, 
that resists authority. And so those who came later were not pleased with the successor. Get him out of here. He's not doing anything for us. And so I heard uh, a definition of leadership some years ago. I believe it was John Ortberg, uh, a pastor out West, who said, leadership is the art of disappointing people at a rate they can stand. Hmm. Leadership is the art of disappointing people at a rate they can stand. If you disappoint them too quickly, they're going to throw you out, right? If you never disappoint them at all, you're not going to address the realities because Ecclesiastes, why this is such an important book, we are in a fallen world. Things don't work. <laughs> Plans do go awry. Affairs of state, affairs of organization, affairs of church, affairs of family get messed up. And so the sooner we come to grips with this reality, this assessment of life as it is, not as we wish it would be, but as it is, that the sooner we can um, gird ourselves for reality. And this is what you know, as parents and grandparents, we're trying to teach our, our, our children, this is how life is. I've told the story, my kid's coming home, it's not fair, the teacher said this and did that when I didn't get involved. And I, I just said back to my kids, who told you life was fair? <laughs> I mean, what, I said, what a great thing this has happened because this is gonna happen again and again and again in your life. Things aren't gonna work out, you're gonna, and so you need to get over the notion that you think life is supposed to be fair. Okay. Now, that, that wanting life to be fair comes out of we're made in God's image and we have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. We want life to be a certain way. But fair is fair to me, right? <laughs> I'm not always concerned about fair for the other guy. And so I think there's something here. This, this chapter in particular has so much to commend itself, uh, both from the honest assessments, the sweet image and picture given us of the the partnership, the cord of three strands. And I just love the honesty with which it speaks to affairs of state. We are so very fickle. May God have mercy on us. May God have mercy on us and cultivate within us a humility and a wisdom around all of these matters. Okay, let's close. Father, we thank you once again for the reading and reflection upon your holy word. I commend and, and we pray for the effectiveness of your word in our lives. You, you say your word goes forth and does not return void, but accomplishes your purposes. And so use these words from Ecclesiastes chapter four to shape and deepen our character and to form faith, hope, and love within us. As we offer our prayer in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray together saying, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And may God the third strand... May he weave you into deep and sweet partnerships in so many ways. And may he hold your life together. Uh, 
in such a way that your life is not quickly broken. And so may God bless and keep you this day and forevermore. Amen.